With the incredible ramp-up and the importance of digital capabilities in the face of the pandemic challenges, coupled with daily advances in technology, we are generating a huge amount of data across the globe. According to database company Statista, there will be 74 zettabytes of data created in 2021. To give you some sense of the scope, a zettabyte is a number with 21 zeros behind it. But all that data is not simply bits inside computers and phones. It's words and pictures, memories and voices, where untold stories can be gleaned and decisions can be informed. And giving voice to the data to tell those stories is the special purview and art of the data scientist. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we discuss data analytics and data science with Dr. Kirk Bourne, Chief Science Officer at Data Prime, and Michael Brown, Global Technology Lead for Predictive Analytics at Jacobs. Well, Kirk and Michael, thank you both so much for joining me today and uh, joining this discussion about data analytics and data science. You know, there's a lot of fascinating things and developments going on. And, and obviously, with the advent of the pandemic, it seems like our digital lives have accelerated exponentially uh, with uh, all the proliferation of virtual meetings and things like that. And so, you know, we're going to talk about data analytics and data uh, in the context, particularly in large organizations. And so, just to kind of start us off, Kirk, I'd, I'd like to direct my first question to you. How do you see the role of the data scientist evolving these days, you know, especially like I was saying, in the light of the pandemic and the resulting digital acceleration in business and in our lives? Well, for one thing, I think the uh, pandemic accelerated already a, a trend that was happening, which was uh, in, in the very fast evolution that's been the data science profession in the last 10 years or so. Uh, the, the early days was a lot of sort of working in the sandbox, so to speak. The, you know, people were just hired. Go look at our data and see what you can find in the data. You know, find patterns, find insights, find things we can, you know, monetize or improve decisions from. Mm -hmm. And it's and it had to get out of that sort of sandbox phase to a more of an enterprise level operational phase. You know, with more structure and governance around it. And I think with the pandemic, that was sort of a forced our hand that we had to do that. For one thing, the people talk a lot in the last year about what they call concept drift. That is, the previous models of consumer behaviors, for example, were just obviously completely wrong because what we were buying and when we were buying and how much we were buying it all completely changed. Hmm. And so, and so, concept drift and data drift types of data we were being collected are, was obviously very different. I mean, just for example, uh, if you if you were shopping online. And it was during normal business hours. It could, you could probably safely assume, not always, but some, most of the time, assume it was for like a business related purchase. And so the kinds of things an e-commerce store would recommend might be related that way. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that's a strict rule, but I'm just saying it was, it was probably more likely. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas now, if you're working from home, I mean, it's like all bets are off. What hour of the day is work? What hour of the world, what hour of the day is play? Mm -hmm. And, and so, 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 so concept drip became a very important, uh, feature of, of, of the data scientist's life that, that is how can you track whether your model is still working? It's still right. That is the, the data hasn't changed or the thing you're predicting hasn't changed. I always say the concept drift and data drift are just two endpoints of one general concept, which is called model drift. Mm -hmm. All right. So model drift, a model is just uh, basically an output given an input of data, right? So Y equals F of I X mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so X is the input, Y is the output, and, and the F is the function, is the model that converts data, you know, to insights or to, to value. Mm -hmm. And so model drift is, is, is that sort of changing 
process where the, either the data, the X, or the, the thing you're predicting, the Y, is changing. And so, so there's a lot more attention now paid, to, uh, paid now to a model ops and ML ops as functions of the data sciences. And that puts it in, you know, square into the realm of, of the enterprise function that it is, uh, that there needs to be that governance over the work that's being done. It's not just, you know, we're having fun with finding patterns in data. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I can only imagine that our, you know, our basic assumptions that we have on behavior patterns have been upended, like you're, like you're intimating. So the data, you know, pouring through the data, I mean, I, I, I kind of assume, and I'm not a data scientist, but you'd have to like get really granular to try to parse out like what kinds of behavior fall into what kind of models, because it's, it's no longer this like, clear cut, you know, these types of behaviors tend to proliferate during this hour of the day versus that hour of the day. You know, now you're having to look for other indicators to kind of, you know, really be able to judge and and pull the intelligence out of the data. And so from an enterprise, you know, uh, standpoint, you know, they're investing resources in it. And of course, the digital model of how business is is transacted these days is, is kind of changed you know, how do you, what do you see are the keys to expanding data intelligence and fluency within an enterprise to, to match this new world? Well, I think for me, uh, I like a philosophy that I heard uh, one company CEO said once, and that he's, he basically uh, inter- introduced the, this culture of data democratization. But the way he said it was, was really struck me. He said, in my company, we, we no longer have a front office or back office. All right. So, so the way I interpreted that was, you know, sort of the front office, I mean, this is sort of the customer facing thing and the back office is sort of the infrastructure team. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that, is that if anyone sees interesting insight or pattern or, or something in the data, they have, they should say something. And so that's how I like to say it. If you see something, say something. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so don't pass it off saying that you, you like, you see some interesting thing that someone posted about your company online on your social network site let's okay so you're, you're you're on facebook and someone says something about your company or your product uh, that's not my job you know that's the marketing people's job I'm not, or, or something like that no no he said everyone's job uh you know to to represent the company and so so if you see something say something and 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 he told stories and i, I don't necessarily have time to tell some of those stories but 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 just remarkable uh increase in customer engagement and customer satisfaction with the business because people brought things to the attention of the company that they were able to address to help comp- uh, you know, some customer needs that may have just been missed because it, it wasn't like the person who was responsible, you know? And so that, so I, so I think every, once everyone realizes that everything is data, so I, I've, I actually give courses on data literacy and it starts with awareness that everything is data, right? Mm-hmm. Every, uh, your, your phone, everything you do on your phone, it generates data, uses data, creates data. You know, people are using your data to make money. Why aren't you using it too? Okay. And mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's that whole, whole data intelligence is that there, there's some, there's some value in all of this stuff that we're, they're doing in our digital lives to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so, so part of that data intelligence is, is starts with that data awareness and then realizing that it's data science for all the, the buzzwords and, and hype around it. It's, it's really nothing more than what we normally are already do as human beings. As even as little children, we, we see patterns and things. We, you know, we recognize our mother's voice, our father's voice. We recognize when our, we're hungry. Mm-hmm. We, rec- we recognize, you know, when, when we touch the stove, we burn our fingers. So, 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 so we recognize patterns. Children sort their toys by color and shape and all kinds of things. So this, these are common things that people do. And so, 
And so patterns and customers are, again, groups of customers, of segmentation, you know, grouping toys, grouping customers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's patterns in what they do. So, so, re- so getting people informed about what it is that we do, stripping away the hype and, you know, you know, the air of uh, how cool am I? I'm a data scientist. Hey, it's, no, this is something we naturally all do. So why don't you get on board with it and do it too? And so I, I think uh, that really helps with the fluency aspect of data intelligence. And, and that is once people become sort of data literate, that is they can recognize that they understand what it is, then they can say, hey, I can, I can identify patterns too. Like we're seeing a sudden increase in this or a sudden uh, increase in the number of calls in our call center about that product, or we're seeing a lot of returns here, or we're seeing a lot of uh, upsell opportunities because other businesses are selling this other thing, which is like our thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things people can recognize and bring to the attention of the right people in the business. But it's not that everyone's role changes in the business. It's just that they they still have the power to gather insights and to report those to the right people. That's interesting, you know. And in, in the world of like you know strategic innovation, we kind of see a similar, I think, a similar kind of thing where organizations tend to some organizations, and it's all on a scale, but some organizations in particular, you know, that people tend to think of innovation as like there's a certain department that handles that and that's not really my job you know is to innovate but the reality is it's everybody's job to react uh to innovate right in some degree and so it's everybody has to kind of embrace that and internalize it and then take action on that and that you know it sounds like with data it's a similar thing you know that if you see like you're saying if you see something you say something so it's like we're all responsible for our organization as like for data capture and then for sharing that. And so, you know, Michael, you know, kind of in tandem with that, you know, there's a question about inertia and, you know, organizations, yeah, they realize there's something to the data science, there's some magic involved, but I'm not really sure I want it to influence how I make strategic decisions or whatever. You know, how can organizations overcome potential inertia, Michael? embrace greater confidence in the use of data analytics in their decision-making abilities. Yeah. I mean, inertia is a very real thing, especially for larger companies. Uh, it's, it's challenging for them to be more progressive and, and to kind of break the standard rules of engagement, you know, as, as the technology and as, um, you know, more advanced analytics come into play that can really um, sort of disrupt the, the business as usual workflows that we have. Um, you know, Kurt touched on this a little bit. I think culture is really that first place to start. You know, overcoming an inertia is predominantly a people problem. It's not really a problem of the technology. So, you know, to really recognize the true promise of what data science can do, advanced analytics can, can bring to the table, we've really got to create that cultural shift first in the organization. Um, and to truly, you know, what I mean by that is like truly value and treat, you know, data as an asset in the organization. So, you know, like Kirk said, we're making data all the time, all over the place. And uh, if we're not um, thinking about what this data can actually mean to the organization, we're not capturing it, we're not storing it, we're not looking at how we can drive insights off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't create that cultural shift, you know, we're not going to get there. So that really has to be the starting point in my mind um, to, to make that that change. And so that, you know, kind of feeding into that, I think the other area that's really, really important is empowerment of, of those who are maybe not the data scientists, but, you know, empowering and championing the decision makers and the big thinkers. You know, you know, if you see something, say something is, is perfectly in line with that. You know, you need to make sure that everybody, um, is empowered to know that they can bring, you know, good ideas to the team. 
Um, so, you know, we need, we need to get everybody comfortable with what that data science process looks like so they can better understand how we actually get to, to the results. And that's, you know, building and establishing trust with them. You know, we're essentially developing robust algorithms and what is perceived as like a black box, right, to a lot of people. Uh, and these are automating a lot of the thought processes and decisions that we've all been traditionally, that people have been traditionally making. Uh, and so we need to invite them into the process, you know, embed them into the teams and really engage and educate and empower them. You know, one approach is to make, you know, them the owner of what's being developed, you know, not the data science team itself. So that when we go to present result, you know, the results of what's happened, they're the ones presenting it. You know, they're the ones speaking the language of, of, of the other experts and engineers that they work with. And I found a lot of success with that approach rather than just having myself or a data scientist come in and present the results. Mm. The other element with empowerment that I think is important is we need the data science team. You know, we absolutely, need, you know, we as that team, we really need those domain experts and those people with those disruptive ideas. So we need them to establish the first principles of the problem, you know, we're going to be solving. And we need them to define that problem space we're working in and ultimately determine if our results are actually meaningful and impactful. So I think one of the reasons organizations friction in developing an influential data science practice is that it gets left isolated and the data science teams are not really situated correctly in the business to, you know, solve and really create solutions. Um, you know, they end up kind of creating, they end up kind of creating solutions for problems that may not really exist. And so we've explored ideas about like, uh, you know, this concept of residency, you know, how can we bring in big thinkers and sort of industry leaders into the data science team? It's kind of like your hub and spoke, but it's got more of that added goal, um, you know, to Kirk's point on literacy, on educating. And then when, when those people come into residence and they learn all of this and they leave, you know, they're able to go back and start instilling that cultural change with everybody that they work with because they now see the light and they get it. Yeah. I, and it's funny. I've seen that like at, at our company uh, with the pandemic and we started having CEO meetings, town hall meetings virtually. And early on, the communications function engaged members of the data science community within our company to measure sentiment and to like, mm -hmm. and it really helped kind of inform, you know, messaging strategy and like addressing like what it was that people wanted to hear about and what kind of information they need, you know, they needed more details, that sort of thing. And it became very powerful, I think, for the C-suite to be able to leverage the data in that way at a time, which, you know, obviously was very crucial for us. Now, Michael, um, another another thing just to kind of touch on is uh, data visualization. And, you know, I'm a big fan as a storyteller. I'm a big fan of data visualization because it allows you to like to do things and show things uh, that really bring a new dimension to like what you're trying to communicate. And I think it's it can be highly effective in telling stories. And so. How, uh, you know, in the context of this discussion, how can data visualization help promote greater awareness and affinity in organizations for the power of data uh, to influence decisions and to tell the organization's stories? Yeah, no, visualizations, like you're saying, are immensely powerful. And oftentimes, you know, the effectiveness of the visualization and the story it's, it tells can really make or break the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I'd, I'd wager to say that, you know, data visualization can be one of the most important elements of data and analytics as it's sort of that endpoint to like where a user or your audience is going to try to now learn from and, and make decisions off of, off of all the work you've done. And if you can't get that information communicated, it's not going to go anywhere. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I personally love data visualization and mapping of data and, and sort of the science and art of making these beautiful and informative visualizations. It's, it really is, you know, blending of creativity and, and data intelligence to develop, you know, not just infographs, but like you said, Paul, like kind of crafting that narrative, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get to what you're trying to communicate. Um, but to get more to your question here, um, when we think about creating influence with our data analytics in an organization, when I think about the word influence, it's really about resonating with as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And so data visualization is the opportunity to take that very complicated process we're talking about and the very complicated outcomes um, that are often based off of lots and lots and lots of data and information and show that outcome and tell it in a story in a way that it will actually resonate with people so that they can understand it and have their own aha moment. And so getting that aha moment really quickly is very, very important. Uh, you know, there's a, a colleague of mine, Alex Maru, and I don't know if he's, you know, quoted, you know, made this quote or not, but, you know, he calls that reducing the time to insight. And I really like that term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, effective data visualization can dramatically reduce that time to insight. It can act, and it can actually improve the decisions, you know, the accuracy and decisions that people are making from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all know organizations are only generating more and more data, like we've been saying. And more data does mean more potential for insights, but without an effective way to digest that and present it to decision makers, it can actually be counterproductive, you know, due to things like information overload. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we present too much information at once or it's too cumbersome to wade through to develop that answer, then that whole decision making process gets tied down and we start to really uh, lose the value in, in the data that we have. Um, so by taking all that data and displaying it simply and clearly, it can be very obvious to the audience, you know, what decisions need to be made. Like a really like dumbed down example is trying to have somebody make a decision off of countless rows in an Excel spreadsheet, mm-hmm. you know, versus looking at like a pie chart or a bar graph. You know, you can e- immediately see the distribution in the data and you can see what's going on in there. And in a very short amount of time, make a decision off of that rather than having to comb through all of those rows and try to make sense of what you've been reading for the last hour in this spreadsheet. And so I think that gets to the crux of it. You know, it's really important, you know, if you want to create this affinity for data science, and what data can bring um, and how it expands and sort of grows and influence in the organization, mm-hmm. you know, by effectively visualizing data for decision makers, you know, they will make better decisions, which will in turn create more desire an emphasis, you know, on the power of the data in the organization. So I, th- mm. I think that's really where you see it. Hmm. Okay. And then, Kirk, what should enterprises be doing to ensure that their data assets are properly assessed and leveraged to create greater value for themselves and their clients? And I don't know, maybe it's something like, you know, bolstering their strategic decision-making opportunities, identifying product enhancements, you know, merging consumer sentiments and things like that. So what, what should they be doing, they being enterprises, to ensure their data or assets are being properly assessed and leveraged? Well, after what Mike was saying, I think they should all uh, get an undergraduate degree like me in physics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's okay. That was sort of a joke, but not because I, as he was talking, mm-hmm. I, I wrote down. Uh, <laughs> I do have a degree in physics. Uh, multiple <laughs> concepts from physics that we're talking about here: friction, inertia, mm-hmm. momentum, mm-hmm. You know, data gravity, the flywheel effect, which is get this thing running, affinity, resonance, mm-hmm. you know, even uh, like diffusion of the knowledge across. The organization, but all those concepts, you know, are, apply in this case where, where, where you, you need to get the, you know, get the inertia, you know, go get overcome the inertia, overcome the friction to get things moving. And then once you get that flywheel effect going, mm-hmm. so, so, so small successes breed big successes. 
So, so one, one thing that enterprises can do is just, is just to encourage small steps, these small successes, right? So, I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's business gospel now, right? A- Agile, DevOps, all this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. those small incremental, uh, proofs of value, and not just a proof of concepts, but proofs of value. Mm-hmm. And those small incremental steps will, will, will build confidence that this is cool. This is the right thing to do and that anybody can contribute. Anyone can be a success and, re- and reward those successes. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll build advocacy f- across the organization for bigger things, and that's important because I because I, I I would often tell people that some of the friction comes uh, from all different levels of the organization, right? So mm-hmm. so the people in the trenches feel like, well, this AI thing is going to take my job away, mm-hmm. okay? Because it's some some robot's going to do what I do, or, or the middle manager is afraid because you know uh, the, all the decision making that I used to make is, mm-hmm. is, is is being handled by some decision agent. Right. And, and the, the, you know, the people at the executive level say, well, where's my power now? Because all this stuff is being done by the data scientists. Right? Mm. And, and, but the, but the fact is, is that where everyone's contributing because that the domain knowledge still resides in humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some of the past pattern detectors are children because they don't have biases built in. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so I think having some very young people at, at the table mm-hmm. is, is a very clever thing to do. I mean, I've seen some organizations do that. You know, when when they have those executive meetings with the CEO and his, and his you know executive staff, mm-hmm. uh, that that happened to me when I was very young. I I, I was at work at the Hubble Space Telescope project, and the, the se- I was just like fresh out of grad school, right? Yeah. And the senior executive scientist on on the, on the project had weekly meetings, and uh, they they decided they needed a junior staff member to represent the junior staff's perspective, and and uh, I, I was the guy, and, and I, I mean, I was like, it went in there with trepidation, because these were Nobel <laughs> Prize winners, and, <laughs> and I was like, fresh out of here. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, you, and so there's a lot of things you could do about that democratization, but, but it really is set by example. You don't, you don't just like, you don't just set a culture by just, you know, coming out with a policy statement about a culture. You have to mm-hmm. live it. You have, you have to, you have to demonstrate it mm-hmm. okay and so if someone finds an interesting insight from data that brings value to the business and celebrate that no matter who that is so what another thing which which I, I, i've had so many wonderful thoughts after what mike said I, I feel like i could go on for another hour here but i'll just say one thing is that is that uh i had this experience working in a company where we did a lot of analytics we, we sold analytics we were consultants we, we you know that's what mm-hmm. we did okay mm-hmm. we 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 we, pro, we pro consulted and provided analytics services Mm-hmm. you know, to our clients. Okay. So, so, so that's what our job was. But, but one day my, my boss, uh, we call them career managers. There's my career manager. She came to me and she said, I'm not going to be your career manager anymore because I'm going into enterprise services and I, uh, as opposed to client facing stuff. And I said, well, what's that mean? Mm-hmm. And he, I said, she said, you know, like stuff like HR and training and human resources and mm-hmm. finance. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and, and I said, Oh, that's interesting. And then she explained what she did, that they're going to apply analytics to the internal functions of our company. Hmm. So I said to her, oh, oh, so we're going to drink our own Kool-Aid now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. instead of just selling these things, <laughs> we're actually going to do them ourselves. So even in organizations that are heavily drenched in analytics already, mm-hmm. sometimes their internal processes, their internal enterprise functions like HR and finance, communications. There's an example you were just talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't we get customers? Why don't we get? sentiment from our employees after they have a training course did they really like this training course yeah. did they really like this uh meeting with the senior executives that that, that little re- retreat we had did that did that work for people i mean mm-hmm. just ask those questions so so i think uh, uh showing that we believe what we're doing is is a real thing that brings value let's just prove it to ourselves as well as as, as like selling it mm-hmm. and so that this works for all organizations in my mind 
And then I just want to go back to that data storytelling thing because I, this is, I'm a massive big proponent of data storytelling because, mm-hmm. because that, because that connects with people in a different way, right? And, and I always like to quote Maya Angelou who said that, you know, people will forget what you said and what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And data storytelling engages people in such a way that it also reminds me of another quote from another person who's not quite as famous, but some guy wrote one time, he said, people don't make a decision based upon a number. They base upon, upon, they feel it. They, I mean, they just know in their knower, as my mother used to say, you know in your knower, it's the right thing to do. And so that doesn't come by just showing me a graph, even though the graph is powerful. Yeah. Because, because I, I, I could see it, right? When you show me that, that graphic, you know, but if you tell me the story behind that graphic, like, what is it that I'm learning from this? What, what is it that, what insight are you telling me about mm-hmm. when you show me this? Uh, that, I, that I can remember that I can take away from it. And, 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 and whether you're, whoever that stakeholder is, whether it's a boss or a client, or even even a, a you know the the people in the trenches who you, you're trying to sell this idea to that the mm-hmm. rest of the business hey we, we really do mean it when we say we want to democratize data science mm-hmm. and so so the, so the data storytelling uh, is is sort of like that that part of that diffusion process of diffusing mm-hmm. like in physics right <laughs> so diffusion is like when you have oxygen atoms here and hydrogen atoms there and you put the two gases together then eventually it all merges into a, a good mixture. So now, so now you don't have just data scientists over there and non-data scientists over there. It's now diffused across the business. And what happens there is then you get another physics concept, which is laser, right? The laser is, is light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so, you get the, so you get this resonant effect that more people want to do it. It's, so it, it stimulates mm-hmm. more, all right? So, that, so that's where those small victories grow into larger victories. Mm. It's, in essence, people internalize their their own contributions to data science and they want to be a part of it and so and then yes. the more the more they share and the more gener- data is generated then you know the, the more that the pool of knowledge grows so so michael as a, a follow-up to uh the question about you know enterprises uh assessing and leveraging their data what should they be doing to ensure their data is optimally monetized i.e. the money questions. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's a, uh, it's such a tricky one, I think. Um, you know, where, where I always try to start is that data sort of in and of itself may not be valuable. And so we have to often know what the true value of the data is. You know, to, to get there, we'd have to actually go develop some kind of value from it, right? And so, you know, when it's not very meaningful, we need to then look at how can we enrich it? How can we contextualize it and, and really apply it? And that I think is where uh, companies and organizations need to be focusing on the monetization of data. When I think about monetizing data, I tend to, to steer that way into sort of the broader ecosystem that constructs value from the data. You know, a couple, you know, kind of more obvious, bigger principled ones around that. Like I just talked about enrichment a little bit. So that's really where we can, I think, start to instill value in the data in of itself. Um, because you start to take these disparate data streams, you know, you combine them, contextualize them and generate more informed data sets. And so now you're actually creating much higher value data. And that, you know, and when you create that data, that's what can be monetized because it's directly applicable to a, a client problem, a, a, you know, some kind of customer challenge and internal business need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, starting there, like how can we make the data smarter? Put insert real value, you know, take our own thinking and intelligence and sort of insert that into the data. That's a good way to start the monetization process. Um, the other one that, you know, we hear a lot about is sort of like, an, uh, you know, analytics or insights as a service where 
for taking that data and developing some, you know, kind of interpretation of it and a model that we can plug into a, a workflow and, and people can use. And, and that's also another kind of more generally obvious monetization strategy. Um, so, but I do think it's important when we think about, um, these business models that we think a little bit bigger than just these purely like data as a service, insights as a service approach. Um, there's so much more that can be done. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think a little bit about like the platform business model. I think that's a really interesting way to think about how we monetize all the transactions that are occurring in and, in and around the data that, that's going on and really the platform, you know, sort of supporting all of those integration points with the data. If you're not familiar with the platform business model, the, you know, the analogy I've seen used is sort of the art gallery, essentially. So the art gallery provides the physical space and is monetizing all those different transactions that occur in it. So, you know, you think about like somebody getting charged for admission, uh, and then an artist being charged to showcase their work and then a percentage of the art sale and a percentage of the concession sales. You can start to see how that works. So there's all these transactions that are occurring in there and how can we monetize every little piece of that? Um, so if you swap out art in that scenario and you insert, you know, data and analytics, you can kind of begin to get the picture. So, you know, by thinking a little bit bigger than just the data as a service and providing that platform that's going to ingest the disparate data, enrich it to be more informed and valuable data, and then create insights of, off of that um, that are going to be, you know, directly applicable to the customer problem. That's, I think, where you holistically create more value, you know, from from data and those monetization strategies, I think, end up being more valuable to the customer and of itself because it gets to the root of the problem and it's just one-stop shop for them. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. I like that. I like that idea of the art gallery. Kirk, let me ask you, where do you see the role of the chief data officer headed in the next couple of years? And then, Michael, I'm going to ask you to kind of talk a, a little bit about the field as well um, after that. But, you know, where do you... You're starting to see more and more, Kirk, where, you know, like you're a chief science officer at Data Prime, for instance. So it's like that's that's a relatively new role, I think, in the professional landscape, it seems, or at least, you know, in my experience, like that's something that has been created in, like, say, the last 10 years or less. You're seeing more chief data officers, chief science officers, that sort of thing. So obviously, organizations are starting to to see the importance of putting a seat at the table. And the executive suite for that. But where do you see the role of chief data officer headed, you know, in the next like three to five years? That's a, that's a really interesting, uh, prelude to that question there because it, there has been this proliferation of, of C titles, right? I mean, chief mm -hmm. analytics officer, chief data officer, chief risk officer, chief algorithm officer. We've chief analytics officer. We heard a lot of different ones over the recent years. Uh, and, uh, CSO, that's normally chief security officer. Mm -hmm. So I don't call myself a CSO because people will think that's what I do. It's chief science officer. Mm -hmm. But I was actually talking with my boss today and I was seeing how I was creating all these different synergies between our, you know, our clients and different vendors and stuff. I said, well, maybe I just should be the chief synergy officer. That's still CSO, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so I think what's happening to the chief data officer is early in the revolution. Now, and again, the data revolution is only like nine years old, right? I mean, in 2012, you saw multiple things happen. You saw the McKinsey report come out, with, which said there was going to be this enormous talent gap. Mm -hmm. uh, you saw the the president, the administration announced in the United States like a $600 million investment in, it, in data, which got everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's this crazy paper that came out in the Harvard Business Review saying, you know, sexiest job of the 21st century, you know, data mm -hmm. scientist. So right in 2012, all of a sudden, there was this explosion of interest. At, at all levels, you know, government, business, 
universities everywhere. Mm. Uh, so everything just was put under the umbrella of data, uh, chief data officer, right? And, mm-hmm. and they were doing these different things. They were doing data science. They were doing analytics. They were doing risk. Uh, they were doing all kinds of different, a lot of data governance, a lot, a lot of projects around open data. Mm-hmm. So certainly chief data officers in government were focusing a lot on open data, like we were creating open government and open data. But I, so I, so I think we're getting sort of, even though we're getting more titles now, I think it makes more sense because the titles now become more reflective of what people are asked to do. So I think the chief data officer is heading more, uh, into sort of more the governance role. It's, it's been doing governance for a long time, but, but I think, uh, the, the governance in the sense of, of, uh, what risk and compliance require. Okay. There's, there's a lot of requirements on the government side, you know, not, not just in, in Europe, but some of those that get absorbed in this country. And then of course in California, there's different data privacy laws. Mm-hmm. And so knowing how data is used, who's using it, what are they using it for? How's the data protected? What are the data, what are the privacy rules around particular types of data? And so that person is going to be responsible, I think, for having an inventory, you know, maintaining oversight of how and where and who and what and when <laughs> the different data sets are being used. So it's going to be less analytics in the analytics sense, but there will be analytics on that role. But th- that is, that is analytics on, again, drinking your own Kool-Aid. How, how, mm. so doing analytics on how the data is being used. What are the patterns and insights I can get for how the data are being used in my organization? So it's an analytics activity within that office of, of, of data compliance, data risk, you know, data governance. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I see, I personally see that that direction is going because I think people who are doing more data science things are going to get a, a chief data scientist title more than a chief data officer title, which in, in you know, eight or nine years ago, they were sort of like all considered the same title. Mm. And it shows, I think, a, a, a greater maturation of the field and, and greater understanding of the varying disciplines that go into it. And so in, out of respect for that, you're starting to see greater specialization, whereas before probably... Data was just this, I think, like Michael was saying, it's a black box, just kind of like, what is that, you know, and how does that work? And that's you know, the chief so, black box officer. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> now it's, now we're starting to get a more sophisticated understanding, uh, I would say. So, so Michael, my last question for today, kind of as a follow up on that is where do you see data analytics headed in the next couple of years? And what are some of its developing aspects that you're the most excited about? Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we actually touched on where at least I'm seeing trends in just sort of my day to day with, with our data science teams. Um, you know, democratization is you know, the word Kurt used earlier. And, and that is really where I continue. I see data analysts just continuing to expand. It's a current trend. And it's only getting more prominent with some of the developments in auto ML software. Um, you know, it's just making it easier, you know, and easier for people to get engaged in data science, you know, it it operates more quickly than, uh, you know, maybe traditional teams would have would have um, been able to do. And so at least in, you know, sort of the exploratory data analysis space, that is. Um, And so as that software gets better and better, I see it just democratizing the space even more. And I'm, I'm not saying that the, you know, the person who really understands data and has high data intelligence is, is not going to have a job anymore. In fact, I think they're going to be even more empowered. They're going to be able to make an impact more broadly with the use of this technology. Um, so AutoML and democratization is, is a really big trend, and we're, we're already seeing it now, and I just think that that's going to continue to expand. I also think we'll start to see a bit of a blend in trends. You know, there's this idea that uh, machine learning and AI is going to get better with smaller amounts of data. And so as AutoML begins to kind of bring, you know, that into it, uh, we're going to see just a very powerful blending of those two into something friendlier and easier to use. 
by people that can be dramatically expanded upon because you don't need all of that data that been maybe been traditionally required. And so as that, as that matures, I just think we're going to see an explosion in that because everybody's, you know, your citizen data scientist, your, you know, your person who, you know, who, who saw it and brought the problem to the team might be able to even go self-serve now. Um, and so that, that does make me very, very excited. You know, the, the absolute best analytic projects I've ever been involved with, you know, it started from somebody else's idea, somebody who had a, a challenge in their business. And came to me and wanted to collaborate. You know, how, how can we use data to, to make this answer this question in, in a better way? And if we can empower those people, you know, with the big ideas and, and these, and these, these challenges that they see day in and day out, you know, to, if they can self serve more in this space, I just think we're going to have an all around more informed in business, uh, you know, more informed business and, and achieve the goal of the culture, right? That we're after, you know, this culture of, 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 of data as an asset. And I, I just think that'll be a, I'm excited by that and what, and what some of these uh, uh, developments are going to bring. Mm, that's fascinating. Well, Kirk and Michael, thank you both very much for your time today and your insights and your obvious passion for data analytics and data science. It's really fascinating. It's very technical, but it's, I'm not a technical person and I was fascinated and engaged because of just the possibilities that data and like the smart application of data science uh, are endless. And I, I see it as a storyteller and I'm, you know, I think that decision makers would do well to see the asset that it truly is. So I want to thank you both so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. Thank you.